Hello and welcome to this podcast from High North Dialogue 2015, a collaboration of the University of Nordland, the High North Centre and the Arctic Institute. We're speaking with attendees and speakers about the work, the High North Dialogue and the conference's theme of security and business in the Arctic. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mark Jacobsen. Today we are talking with Michael Byers, a professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law. His work focuses on the international law and politics of the Arctic. Dr. Byers has been a fellow of Jesus College, Oxford University, and a professor of law at Duke University. He has also taught as a visiting professor at the universities of Cape Town, Tel Aviv, and Novosibirsk. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it's very good to be here with you. Thank you. Can I ask you to start by telling us about your current research as it relates to the Arctic and your plans for the near-time future? Uh, well, yes. My, uh, my research at this very moment concerns uh, some issues of uh, military procurement as they relate uh, to the Arctic. Uh, as some listeners might know, the uh, opening of the Arctic uh, due to climate change is bringing more activity to the Arctic and with that, uh, a greater need for uh, search and rescue and uh, for uh, policing, uh, for patrols to, to deal with non-state threats like uh, smuggling or illegal immigration. And it is in this context that uh, I have uh, uh, done some work on the issue of the, the procurement, the acquisition of uh, search and rescue uh, planes, uh, Arctic patrol vessels, and also uh, related to that, uh, the issue of uh, which kind of, of fighter jet uh, the Canadian military uh, should acquire to enable it to continue Arctic patrols. The theme of the High North Dialogue 2015 is Arctic business and security. First, what comes to mind when you think of security in the Arctic? Well, when I think of security uh, in the Arctic, I, I think uh, primarily of, uh, of, of non-state uh, challenges, uh, not uh, challenges related to uh, uh, the possibility of conflict with other countries, but uh, the challenges that come from increased uh, activity, whether it's uh, increased tourism, increased shipping, increased uh, mining and uh, oil and gas exploration activity. Uh, and with that, I see uh, uh, an increased need for, for search and rescue, which in most Arctic countries is uh, provided by the, the military or uh, the Coast Guard, and um, also uh, related uh, to that in, in terms of, of security, uh, I see increased uh, need for, for policing for what we call a constabulary function, provided either by, by militaries or by Coast Guards to uh, patrol coastlines to uh, uh, watch out for criminal activity and, and where necessary uh, to intervene. Uh, to uh, to catch criminals or, or to uh, uh, stop illegal or dangerous things uh, from occurring. And given how very large the Arctic is and given uh, how inhospitable natural conditions uh, there can be, uh, these are challenging functions that uh, require uh, uh, capable uh, military or Coast Guard uh, forces uh, to venture across great distances to uh, provide these essential functions of the state. During the past year, we have seen how Russia's actions in Ukraine have influenced their relations with the other Arctic states. 
This has especially been visible in a rhetorical escalation, with Canada and Russia being the hardliners, and, of course, in the economic sanctions. What has been your impression of this development, and to what extent do you think it will influence Arctic politics and cooperation in the near future? Well, the first thing to say is that uh, I condemn uh, Russia's actions in Ukraine. Russia has violated international law uh, in Ukraine and, and continues uh, to do so. And uh, that needs to, uh, to be condemned and, uh, and to be punished uh, through sanctions. So I, 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 uh, I give no leeway uh, to Russia uh, when it comes to, to Ukraine. At the same time, I think the Arctic is uh, distinct uh, from Ukraine. And I think uh, we, we must recognize a very long history of working with Russia despite tensions and, and problems in our relationship. And so, for instance, in 1973, the NATO countries, uh, including uh, Canada and the United States and Norway, came together with the Soviet Union to uh, negotiate the Polar Bear Treaty to uh, prohibit uh, the hunting of, of polar bears from helicopters uh, in order to, uh, to save that iconic species. That was uh, in 1973, at the height of the Cold War. And although relations with Russia are, are poor at the moment, they are still much better than they were uh, in the 1970s or the 1980s. And, uh, and therefore, I insist on pointing out to people that uh, we can have problems, uh, we can condemn Russia for its actions in Ukraine, but we still can usefully cooperate, can productively cooperate uh, on some issues, including in the Arctic. The other thing I should say in this regard is that politicians in, in several countries are sometimes uh, guilty of, uh, of, of speaking uh, with uh, too much uh, rhetorical flourish to, to exaggerate their positions. And so to give you one example of this, uh, the Canadian Prime Minister has been uh, very strong in his language directed at Russia. Uh, but at the same time, Canada uh, is uh, one Western country which has refused to impose sanctions against uh, Rosneft, the uh, big Russian state-owned oil company, or Rostec, the big Russian uh, state-owned uh, manufacturing conglomerate. These are entities that uh, the European Union and the United States have sanctioned. Uh, Canada has not. So ironically, although Mr. Harper uh, has perhaps the, the strongest voice in condemning Russia, uh, his own actions are weaker uh, than those of his allies. The deadline for Canada, Denmark and Russia to submit their territorial claims to the Arctic Ocean is getting closer. And reportedly, it is likely that there will be an overlap, not least regarding the geographic North Pole. Could you please tell us how such a potential disagreement could be solved? Well, the first thing to say is that uh, as you and I, I speak, there, there has been good news uh, mm -hmm. very recently uh, in that uh, Russia has confirmed uh, that uh, its uh, new submission to uh, extended continental shelf in the Arctic Ocean uh, will uh, be the, the same size um, and will uh, cover the same area as its uh, initial uh, submission uh, back in, in 2001. And if these reports are correct, uh, this means that uh, uh, Russia uh, is not going to be uh, submitting data, not going to be making a claim uh, to any uh, seabed on the Canadian and Danish side of, of the North Pole. 
essentially Russia's claim will stop at the North Pole, despite the fact that uh, it might have been able to make a scientific case to, to seabed uh, closer to, to Canada or, or to Greenland. And this is a, a very positive development. Uh, this suggests that, that Russia uh, is uh, compromising, is uh, looking for a, a reasonable uh, solution uh, rather than, than seeking to extend its claim as far as uh, uh, the uh, geology and, and geography might allow. I hope that Denmark will be uh, similarly uh, reasonable when it makes its submission. And I hope that the government of Canada uh, will reconsider its, uh, its decision in, in December uh, 2013 to not uh, submit its uh, Arctic Ocean uh, data because of a, a plan to uh, uh, extend further uh, into areas that uh, almost certainly belong to, to Denmark uh, and or Russia. Let's turn towards the question about business, the other theme of the High North Dialogue. What comes to mind when you think of business in the Arctic? Well, to, to some degree, we have already been discussing business because when we talk about military procurement, uh, we talk about the, the companies that, that build uh, aircraft, uh, that, that build ships, and, uh, and so uh, uh, companies that, that manufacture equipment in Arctic countries, although the manufacturing might not take place in the Arctic, are very involved in, in Arctic matters. Uh, the same thing goes for uh, submissions concerning extended continental shelf because those shelves uh, may contain minerals or uh, oil or gas or gas hydrates that could be exploited in the future. And so every issue that, that we talk about in the Arctic has implications uh, for business. Businesses, uh, uh, for instance, need to have world-class search and rescue. They are going to uh, uh, engage in, in commercial activity in the Arctic. It's a very dangerous place, a very remote area. So, so all of these different issues uh, across the, the board uh, directly concern business. Even the environmental protection issues concern business uh, because, as we know, uh, businesses that want to operate in the Arctic uh, need uh, to have the permission of governments and need to have what uh, in English we call social license, need to have the, the support of the populations of uh, the country in which they, they wish to operate, especially in, uh, in democratic countries like uh, Norway or, or Canada. Uh, and, and so um, every issue uh, that we discuss in the Arctic has implications for business. Uh, businesses who want to uh, uh, operate in the Arctic want to have governments in partnership with them uh, providing uh, world-class infrastructure, providing world-class uh, search and rescue, providing uh, the kind of, of environmental protections that ensure public support. And, and responsible, reputable uh, businesses uh, know this. Uh, and, uh, and that's why we actually make such great progress in the Arctic, because uh, most of the companies who, who operate there are responsible and uh, want to make uh, the system work uh, for everyone and for every interest. You have already mentioned the need for new search and rescue technologies and equipment. Moreover, drones and satellites are frequently mentioned as new technologies that could optimize surveillance of the national Arctic territories. Have you registered a need for other kinds of new technologies in the Arctic? And what, in your opinion, could be done to meet this need? Well, certainly, uh, as technology advances, new opportunities arise, but we must not forget the role of existing technologies also. So Canada, for instance, uh, has a, a synthet synthetic aperture 
radar satellite called RadarSat-2 that uh, is in operation at this moment that can uh, not only uh, detect uh, ships at night through clouds, but can achieve such a high degree of resolution that it can positively identify the individual vessel, uh, what its name is, where it comes from. Uh, this is a very, very powerful tool uh, for surveillance uh, because it means that we don't need to send uh, an aircraft or a drone to, uh, to get pictures of uh, a ship. We can do that uh, from space already. And there's a new generation of these radar sat satellites that uh, is uh, in production now that will only expand uh, Canada's capabilities. And other Arctic countries have the same uh, or similar capabilities. And if they, they don't or if they... They, they wish to expand them, can always uh, purchase uh, imagery from, from the Canadian satellite. Uh, it's a commercially available uh, capability. So that's just one example. Uh, we also uh, need to remember that, uh, that Arctic countries uh, do have uh, patrol aircraft that are uh, in operation. Uh, and the question is not new technology, but actually uh, providing the, uh, uh, the funding to, to pay for fuel and to, to pay for uh, the personnel to operate more flights uh, in the Arctic. We will see further development in terms of, uh, of radar and sonar that uh, could, for instance, uh, provide greater uh, awareness with regards to the, the entrances to uh, Arctic Straits like the Northwest Passage or, or the Northern Sea Route. Um, we, we are certainly seeing improvements in, in the ability to, to map the seabed, which uh, is relevant for, for international law purposes uh, in the Central Arctic Ocean, but is also extraordinarily helpful for shipping if we know exactly how deep the water is at every single point. And, uh, and so, yes, uh, the, the, the technology is improving, but our capabilities in terms of technology are, are already quite good when it comes to, to things like surveillance. Where I get excited by technology is uh, the ability of technology to reduce our environmental impacts uh, in the Arctic. Uh, so I get excited about uh, the possibilities for alter alternative sources of energy that could dramatically reduce the, the use of diesel fuel uh, in the Arctic. Uh, I also uh, get excited uh, by the, the possibility of uh, uh, installing uh, scrubber technology uh, onto ships to reduce dramatically the amount of black carbon that is produced. And black carbon is a very powerful uh, climate forcer, a very powerful contribution to climate change that we could almost eliminate through the use of, of new technologies. And that's where I think we need to focus our attention. The Arctic is not going to be a place for armed conflict between different countries. We, we know that. We live in a, a very tightly integrated world. Even the, the, the problems with Russia right now do not change the fact that uh, Russia is a member of the World Trade Organization uh, and uh, a very important partner of the European Union. So these technologies in terms of, of enhancing our ability to reduce our environmental impact in the Arctic will in, in turn uh, promote the expansion of activity there uh, in a way that uh, balances all interests, including uh, not just the interest of business, but the interest of, of the environment and, and national populations also. The potential large amounts of non-living natural resources and the emerging shipping routes in the Arctic have been objects of global interest for quite some time now. The current outlook is, however, not so optimistic due to lower oil prices and the development of shale gas, among other things. Do you think that oil, gas, minerals and shipping in the Arctic will continue to attract global interest? Are the days with the so-called Arctic bonanza over?
Well, the shipping is definitely increasing, and uh, that needs to uh, be the focus of, of some attention. Of course, the shipping is increasing because uh, climate change is having a, an increased impact on, on Arctic sea ice. Uh, so this is not uh, an entirely good thing. It's a, a consequence of, of something that is uh, very serious. Uh, the, the shipping uh, in particular needs, needs attention in terms of uh, ensuring that it, it proceeds in a, an environmentally responsible manner because uh, even a spill of uh, fuel oil from a, a large ship could cause uh, quite severe uh, environmental damage. But the shipping is coming definitely, and uh, already along the uh, northern coast of Norway and into the Barents Sea, we see uh, extremely busy uh, waters, and uh, we see less uh, on the Canadian and, and American side, but that will come also as the, as the sea ice uh, recedes and, uh, and thins over time. Uh, in terms of uh, oil and gas development, uh, it depends a great deal where you are in the Arctic, because in places like northern Norway and uh, uh, in the uh, the western uh, portions of the Russian Arctic, uh, uh, sea ice is uh, is no longer a concern or less of a concern, uh, and that means that that economically uh, this is a fairly normal uh, deep water drilling, and uh, that can proceed at uh, at, at fairly uh, competitive prices. It's when you get into uh, the North American Arctic uh, in particular that the, the cost of oil and gas exploration goes up because of uh, sea ice, which makes for relatively short drilling seasons, and also because of a, a relative lack of, of infrastructure. The most northern port in Canada is at Churchill, Manitoba, which is uh, a thousand kilometers south of the, the Northwest Passage. We just don't have the kind of, of coastal infrastructure uh, to support serious oil and gas activity in the Arctic offshore, uh, at least not yet and probably not for, for several decades. So, so again, it does depend on where you are. Uh, and, and yes, the, the, the world price for these resources does matter. But uh, I don't think we need to be in a, in a rush to uh, uh, develop all the Arctic's oil and gas because, among other things, we know that we cannot, because of climate change and the contributions to climate change, caused by burning oil and gas, that we, we simply cannot, from a, a survival perspective, uh, burn all of the oil and gas on the planet. Uh, we have to use our existing oil and gas to transition to uh, different sources of energy. Uh, that is the challenge. And, and I come back to, to the possibilities for alternative energy in the Arctic, vast potential uh, for hydroelectric, uh, for uh, geothermal, for tidal energy. I've just returned from Iceland, which has managed to become an almost entirely alternative energy country. That's a, a tribute to, to Iceland that uh, other Arctic countries should uh, aim to follow. Well, Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to share your perspectives on the Arctic with us. I look very much forward to seeing you at the coming High North Dialogue Conference in Bodø. Well, it's a fabulous conference and I encourage everyone to attend. I, uh, I will be there and I look forward to it. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. Follow along with this series on iTunes or via our websites highnorthdialogue.no and thearcticinstitute.org. The music you've heard at the beginning and at the end comes from Herbert Severin and can be found at ccmixture.org. Dot org.